Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, friends. Stephen here. Before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to tell you briefly about the Patreon account that we have set up. Tent Theology is free, and we love to make our resources available to anyone who needs them. But it does take time, effort, and money to produce this podcast. Patreon makes it easy for listeners to support the podcast and its work. If you go to patreon.com forward slash tenttheology, you will see that there's three different levels that you could give on a monthly basis, 6, 12, or 24 pounds. And if you want to pay in your local currency, it's very easy just to switch the page so that you can see how much that would be from where you are. Your regular support helps us keep Tent Theology sustainable. It helps us to continue to create content which can be made available to everyone. If you consider yourself a fellow traveler, or if you have found these Tent Theology podcasts to be helpful or useful to you, please consider becoming a patron. No matter what level you are able to give at, all patrons will have access to exclusive content, additional interviews, Q&A sessions, and other goodies. As well, we are going to release on a weekly basis the Bible study at the beginning of the world, the political theology Bible study that I began during lockdown as a way to stay in touch with my subject and some of my students. And I've decided to make this material available to patrons. We'll be going through the entire Gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter. And when that's done, we'll be going through the Acts of the Apostles. There's really no better way to renew the social and political imagination for Christians than to go back and look at what the people who knew Jesus thought it felt like to be around him. So all this stuff will be made available to patrons of Tent Theology. But look, times are tough. History is weird. We get it. We get that not everyone can commit to paying monthly for a podcast. If you want to help Tent Theology in other ways, you can always leave a review on the place where you downloaded this podcast. That actually really helps. Giving a five-star rating to us really helps as well. Or just tell a friend. Tell two friends. Get other people to subscribe to Tent Theology. These things genuinely support us and our work. We couldn't do it without you. And in fact, you're the only reason we're doing this at all. So Sean, Chris, and me, Stephen Backhouse, thank you so much for all the work that you've done with us, the kind words you've sent, and the support you've provided. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Tent Talks, this part of the Tent Theology podcast where we discuss what it might look like to have a renewed social and political imagination for followers of the way. And I am very happy to welcome to this program, Brad Jerzak. Brad Jerzak will be known to many listeners uh, through his books, such as A More Christlike God, A More Christlike Way, 
Are you listening? Is that right, Brian? No, it's called, that? can you hear me? Can but you it, hear me? And it's God asking the question. And the can answer is, him? of course you can. <laughs> a number of amazing books. You might know him. If you are a student at St. Stephen's University, you might know Brad as the Dean of Theology and Culture. If you are an Orthodox believer, you might know him as a reader in the Orthodox Church. If you live in Abbotsford, British Columbia, you might know him as your neighbor. Or if you are a friend of mine, you might know him as one of the kindest, nicest, wisest people I've ever met. So, Brad, welcome to Tent Theology. I'm really glad to have you here. And thanks for agreeing to be so last minute on this on this show. We we saw our window and we jumped on it. It was perfect. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely great. Now, uh, first of all, I got your books wrong. Oh, oh boy. Okay. Oh, just one. Yeah, that's an old one, but it, it's it's the idea of can you hear me? And the children's version of it is uh, we do believe God speaks today, but then this also calls us to discernment, especially in these times when people put horrendous words in God's mouth. And so it's not anything goes, in my opinion. What about the book on uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut? Yeah, that's right. This was a book that you wrote about hell? Yeah, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem. And really, it's an examination of every text in the Bible that talks about divine judgment, the afterlife, and all of that, and says, you know, what's with this monopoly on infernalism and eternal conscious torment when neither the Bible nor the early church fathers were unanimous in that vision. So it's a re-examination of that whole question. Uh, In, inclusivity, what is this one? Yeah, I have one called In, and then the subtitle, long subtitle, Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. And that's, that's actually one of the more recent books that's come out. And what I look at in there is how um, <clears throat> some people have a high Christology, but are very exclusive in terms of who is in. And yeah. then other people are very inclusive, but they think that requires uh, diminishing Jesus. Jesus is unique. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so my approach to it is look at, look at the um, look at Cornelius in the book of Acts where he knew God and was considered righteous and acceptable by God before he's a Christian. Hmm. So there's this kind of inclusion of those as even he's called righteous, even before he has heard the gospel. But on the other hand, uh, the apostle Peter doesn't think, well, then he doesn't need to hear about Jesus. And so he presents him with a gospel that takes him way deeper into his relationship from God fearer to Jesus lover. And yeah. So yeah. we still believe in evangelism, but we just, I, th- I think this idea, we, we will find Christ at work in places we assumed he could not be. Yeah. And now, uh, a more Christ-like God and the more Christ-like way, mm-hmm. and then the future, the more Christ-like Word. book? Word. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about this trilogy. This is the trilogy that I particularly love. Yeah, so um, A More Christ-Like God begins with a theology of God that just says God is exactly like Jesus. And Mm -hmm. any image of God that is contradictory to the image that Christ presented of his Father is problematic, even within the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, we look to Christ, and especially the cruciform, canonic Christ, the one who's emptied himself. uh, This is our image of God. All that right. God is is revealed on the cross in that sense. And then um, a more Christ-like way says, now we, we've seen 
God through the lens of Jesus, and and now how do we see life and humanity and our way, the walk? What is what is the way of the cross? What is, and not that I've arrived, but that Jesus walked it, and He said, "Come, follow me." And then a more Christ-like word is is just about you know uh, how the Bible calls Jesus Christ the Word of God, and we often, as evangelicals, that when that was my background, is was that the Bible is the Word of God. But in fact, I see scripture as pointing to the living word as a test, as sort of a prophetic testimony, so that all of the scriptures, if we read them the Emmaus way, where Jesus says, um, Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures point to me. And mm. that Christians especially have no business in, let's say, the Old Testament without their sponsor and rabbi uh, and point, which is Jesus. And that's so it'll be a hermeneutical book in that sense. How do how do we read the scriptures in that way? And and what do we do with those scriptures that seem to portray God in ways that don't seem very Christ-like? Mm-hmm. And how did the early church teach us to read these scriptures? And where have we gone off track? So that's what's coming out hopefully in the spring. The book's done at the publisher, but we need to do some editing processes. You you are prolific. You are prodigious. I mean, you had two books come out at the same in the same month. I think is that right? You in, didn't Christlike way and in both yeah. come out at the same time. Yeah, and the the fun part about that is they had been one book, and then oh, okay. I extracted that central section on in as its okay. own self published deal. Hopefully, making both books better. <laughs> gotcha. And then there is a new book, uh, a novel, The Pastor, which which we will be having you back on the show to talk about, which you co-wrote with uh, William Paul Young. Yeah, we're really excited about it. It, It's just come out this week now. People can order it, and we have it in a a beautiful little hardcover. We've got it on Kindle. But also we got Boyd Barrett is a voice actor who put together a group of actors, and they did an audio version that's incredibly dramatic. And it took me even to places beyond what my head had done as we were co-writing it. So we're we're excited about that. It's it's dark. I mean, it's it's about called the pastor a crisis, and it's yeah. about a guy who's so badly imploded on his own fundamentalism that he's in a psych ward. Yeah. And the question is whether he'll be able to make the journey from self will to brokenness to surrender. And um, yeah. Yeah. my my youngest son got to be one of the voice actors, and he described the book this way: it is an effed up version of the Christmas Carol, okay, with visitations and God bless us everyone. I'm like, is that good? He's like, oh yeah, no, it's very good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but there's trigger warnings that come with it because we cover adult themes like you know serious yeah. sexual abuse issues that are rooted in real stories of people and situations we know, which makes it super authentic but painful. Well, I will be talking with you and and Paul Young about that, perhaps. What what happened, listeners, is that this is how the sausages are made. I was setting up an interview with Brad about this novel. And in the meantime, he's like, well, you know, I'm free, basically free now to talk if you want. So we just jumped on that. So, so... uh, this is how the sausages are made. This is how the sausages That's are made. Awesome. <laughs> good things back from the UK. So, I mean, but... but I don't think we're going to run out of things to talk about, Brad. And now, the other thing that I mentioned was that you are a reader in the Orthodox Church. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you know how to read. Tell us what a reader is. And I actually would like to hear a little bit about your journey uh, from, from evangelical that uh, you identified yourself as to a reader in the Orthodox Church and also someone who seems to write a lot about the church fathers 
as well. Where did all this come from? So I'll back into it. So currently I'm what's called a reader and that's, that's a level of clergy below the deacon. And it's in fact, not even ordained. And so uh, what the readers do is we read scripture and we read the hymns, but when we say read, we often mean chant. Hmm. And so um, I've learned how to chant along with the other readers as part of our liturgical service. It's, it's where our hymnography comes in. And amazingly, that's our primary source of theology. It's not, we really lean on the early church fathers, mm-hmm. but it's the ancient hymns that are actually the foundation of our theological education and my re-education. So mm-hmm. suddenly I'm reading, chanting things I, where I'm handed the hymn and I must chant it sight unseen and the things that are coming out of my mouth are blowing my mind simultaneously, especially about Christ's conquest of death, okay. entrance into Hades, his destruction of Hades and how he has come back from Hades with everyone and with Adam and Eve um, who represent humanity and how he's raised up humanity with himself and, and that the victory about that is proclaimed every single Sunday. And so that's, we, we proclaim the victory of the death and resurrection of Christ. We, we proclaim the, the victory of his death and resurrection every Sunday, but also um, permeating throughout our services uh, is the theme of mercy that we say mm-hmm. mercy or merciful 154 times every Sunday during the two hour liturgy, which becomes your lens for God. And, and mm-hmm. um, so that's where I ended up. How it came about was um, <clears throat> 17 years ago, I was now 18 years ago, I was unraveling in some of my evangelical theology because I, my time with the Anabaptists had convinced me that, that God is not retributive, that God is merciful and has revealed that through his nonviolent atonement. The violence was ours, not, not the father's, right? So as yeah. that was unraveling and I'm re-examining all the scriptures on that, I met Archbishop Lazar Pahalo, who is, he's a retired archbishop, but he, he is the acting abbot of the local monastery. And I just began sitting at his feet. <clears throat> and we started, first of all, with atonement theology. What does the cross mean if it's not penal substitutionary atonement? What did the fathers say about this? And, mm-hmm. and uh, so I started there with with my theology of the cross, but then also very quickly, what do we do with Old Testament violence and, and texts that purport to be commands to genocide? And could the Abba revealed in Jesus have ever commanded such things? And if if not, how do we read those texts? So, and then um, and then that led me also to like, and then what about hell and if, if God doesn't need satisfaction through eternal conscious torment, how do we read those, those texts? And, and so it began as a theological journey that carried on for 10 years of mentoring with this old monk who looks like Gandalf. He's just like amazing guy. And, um, and who oozes the church fathers. And so these are, I know as a young evangelical, I didn't care what the church fathers said. And he, and he said, well, first of all, you should because they're the ones who gathered the Bible, gave us the New Testament, and defined what the Trinity is, and our Christology comes from them. So 
not only should it matter, but it already does matter. You just don't realize yeah, how you much. Just, you're just too dumb to realize. Right. And so, yeah. you know, so I was assuming a lot of things that I would not really probably have found in in a Bible on my own on a deserted island. These are, this is an inheritance of our tradition. So that was 10 years. But then I, I myself imploded as a pastor. I had a really rough year in 2008 where we had so many tragedies that, that I didn't know if I could trust God. And, and emotionally, I fell apart. And then uh, I entered a, you know, a healing journey that included these guys. And finally, I realized I need the liturgy. I need the prayers of the people. I need the structure of the service. I need the beauty of, of what they're doing as therapeutically. Mm-hmm. And the church became my hospital at that point. So I went from a theological journey to a healing journey. Um, and then all of these years later, now I'm, I'm one of the monastery preachers and, right. and, uh, and a reader. So that's how I got there. Is this, is this a, a trajectory towards becoming a, a priest, an ordained priest yourself? Or is, uh, does, does reader kind of, is that the end of the road in terms of moving through the ranks? I believe for me, it's the end of the road. For many, right. you move from reader to some of the readers become deacons. Most of the deacons are thinking about priesthood. But right, right. Um, I have some convictions about that myself, and so does the church. So mm-hmm. my wife is not orthodox, mm-hmm. so I'm automatically disqualified right, as a deacon. Right. And also, I'm an egalitarian who, <laughs> who, is, who believes I probably shouldn't rise higher in the hierarchy than yes. a woman can. Yes. So... Um, I'm happy. I'm and and I have a greater freedom as a theologian, as a reader, yes. than I would maybe as a priest. So yes, you do. <laughs> you, you should try quitting your job and, and starting an online traveling theological college. Uh, then you'll <laughs> find real freedom to say whatever you want. Uh, how? What do? Why do you think, Brad, that as a evangelical charismatic, why do you think you didn't? Why weren't you introduced to the mercy of God or the the nonviolence of God or the the ability to talk about those texts in the Old Testament? Why why weren't you introduced to that? Why did you have to have a breakdown and a guy who looks like Gandalf telling you this stuff that is pretty basic Christian building blocks? Yeah, I it had a lot to do with how we read scripture. Mm-hmm. And, and then attaching faithfulness to Christ with that way of reading scripture. So in okay. other words, um, we believed that the Bible is inerrant, in, which is an ideology that tells you what the Bible can't do, even if it does. So the yes. Bible can't contradict itself, even if I can even show you does. 400 examples. No, yeah. it can't. And I think that's a very low, ver- low view of the Bible. Yeah. Um, when, when I put structures around it that'll that disallow what's actually there yeah and um so so i believed in in the inerrancy of scripture that's what we were taught and that makes for a very flat bible that means deuteronomy 28 is 100 percent true just as um john 3 is 100 percent true mm. and we would have acknowledged a kind of progressive revelation, but it was always based on a truth on a truth on a truth. Mm. And what we didn't see was the polyphonic nature of the Bible, where you've got voices wrangling with each other, debating each other, contradicting each other. Uh, That would have been taken as a threat. And even seeing it and asking about it then is an act of unfaithfulness. So you really are locked down at that point. Happily, uh, my mom and dad taught me 
to so honor scripture that when I could see how our hermeneutic was dishonoring it mm-hmm. by ignoring some texts, sweeping them under the rug, pretending they're there, um, that, that that wasn't okay with me. And that's yeah. why things started unraveling a little bit. And it's yeah. just like, especially, you know, let's say those genocide texts, it like, it says this, but also Jesus says this and it's not the same, Yeah, you know? And so identifying that those not as contradictions to be that were put my faith in jeopardy, but as part of the genius of this grand narrative of redemption that's laid out in an epic saga with crazy characters, unreliable narrators, and an author who then enters the story in person, which right. is always risky in a in a saga. <laughs> yeah. So to me, my I, I feel like I am more fascinated by scripture and more careful in my reading of it than I ever have been because I realized I could still be faithful. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the fear. Any, what we thought were liberal readings of scripture would take you away from Jesus. Well, it didn't. No. And my literalism, uh, letting go of a, of a young earth, seven day creationism. I was like, wow, then if, if that's not literal, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's like, of course he did. And yeah. How are these scriptures, how did the authors mean to be understood in, in their genres? And mm-hmm. why would that be unfaithful to pay attention to that? So I lost my fear and found out God was bigger and scripture was better and all of yeah. that. Yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? How, you know, certainly in my experience, that the people who kind of shout the loudest about loving the Bible and the biblical literalists, literal, <laughs> literalists yeah. are the ones that sort of don't talk about Jesus hardly at all. Mm. It's really weird. Like you see it in their writings and stuff. Like Jesus just hardly gets a look in. It's all everything else, uh, you know. And yeah. Because really you know weird. what? Because the Old Testament to them is about what it literally says. It's not about Jesus. And, and Jesus disagrees with lots of it. So they just ignore him. You know, it's really weird how, how they love that vision of the Bible more than they love the word of God. Yeah. And to be to be fair, you know, I, I, I would say my dad talks about Jesus obsessively. He's quite a, okay. he's a rabid evangelist, but he's just working out like, okay, where can he let go of his literalism? So I, I suppose they're not all the same in that way. So I don't want a straw man. That's what I'm trying to avoid. But, but like what you're describing, I have seen absolutely. And it's a pattern. Yeah. I just, you know, I just have, have noticed that it isn't that you fall out of love with Jesus. That's not, when you start to read the Bible in, in more polyphonic ways, you don't, you don't stop loving Jesus. It's kind of the opposite. You become much more interested in this character and he becomes much more of a, the pattern that's going to be set for everything else. Um, I, I, yeah, I haven't found that my respect for Jesus has diminished as I've left behind you know, my conservative biblical, I'm not going to try that word again. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what, I mean, and yet some have, right. So I would have, that's the cautionary tale is what, what is it about ex evangelicals that causes them to not only leave conservative conservatism, but to abandon their faith in Jesus. Like that didn't happen to you. Didn't happen to me. What is the cause when it does happen? I think it was actually the toxic elements of, yeah, it's conservatism. The, it's not the Bible the, that's the problem. I mean, I can only speak 
I can only speak anecdotally here. I'm, I know anecdote is not data. I know that. Uh, I do. I can tell you that all the people I've ever spoken to who say, uh, Stephen, I think I'm losing my faith. It takes five minutes to realize what they hate is Trump supporting evangelicals or yeah. toxic relationships or hate disguised as grace. Like that's it. And you're like, all oh, right. Okay. So you're not losing your faith in Jesus. You just aren't a conservative evangelical anymore. And like, yeah. oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and the, tr- the trick is whether they can distinguish the two, right? If, if, if their background has so laminated Jesus to that stuff that they can't separate it, then it's right. Then they are in jeopardy, I guess. And that's, so, that's why we have to have these conversations. What if you can't though, Brad? I mean, what if I, I have this, I have this conversation with myself uh, and my loved ones all the time to the extent that my wife and my friends are, are bored of me talking about it. But like, you know, you look at the landscape and you think, okay, some of the worst people in the world legitimately call themselves Christian. And we're not going to have a debate about whether they're Christian or not. They, they really are. They just are. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're calling themselves Christian offers me no indication that, that we agree about anything of importance. So how useful is that label Christian? Like if, you know, is, is being a Christian or is defending some version of Christianity even worth it? Right. Yeah. And so what's Christian then? Right. And so we've turned it into this noun instead of an adjective. Yeah. And we've turned it into a particular, it's a particular religion. Yeah. Outside of which you can follow Jesus and inside of which you don't necessarily follow Jesus. No, you know, exactly. like, and so I'm I, I'm really nervous about the the label, and I would say um, I should I should probably not identify as Christian. I should probably ask my neighbor whether he thinks I'm Christian, but then I should also ask, what do you mean by that? And if he means exclusive, condemning, and judgy, then I'm yeah. like, oh no, and then <laughs> right that means I'm not a Jesus follower anymore. I've yeah. just got the label. But if he thinks Christian means, you know, well, someone who who acts like Jesus and they're kind and merciful, then looks like, okay. But, but like, it, that's for him to decide. As it yeah. was with the first time the label Christian was used, it was by outsiders. And um, so Paul, I know Paul Young, for example, he would, he's absolutely a Trinitarian Jesus follower who lives it every day on the front lines. Okay. Like, I mean, really grounded that way. But if you, you should, you, when we get on with him, ask him, are you a Christian? Mm. See what he says. Because that, you're exactly right. That's the label has now been so besmirched and has become identified with the very opposite of Jesus following that uh, do I want to waste time defending that label? And some want to preserve it, right? But, I know a lot of people do. And they think, yeah, I guess my problem isn't so much trying to define what's an authentic Christian or not. I actually just think that's an impossible task because Mm. you are a Christian and so is Donald Trump. Like you both are, you know, and and Lady Gaga and Lady Gaga. And she says so. Yeah. So it's, it is a a self-professed label now. And I am actually willing to say, yes, you all are. Mm. And if I admit that everyone who calls themselves a Christian is one, can we please also admit that that label is now so broad to have be almost useless, right? Yeah. 
So it's not that I'm kind of trying to make some judgment about who is and who isn't a Christian. I'm at, it's actually the opposite. I'm like, fine. <laughs> Everyone yes, is. You are and therefore nothing. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, and so then we're, we're kind of left with that weird state where Christians built the world and they built the structures of the world and they helped create our culture. And yet I don't like what they built. Right. Right. So now what do I do? <laughs> I don't know. What are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, I, I will say a lot of the emails I get, I get a lot of, so these days, a lot of the emails are coming in because of this podcast. And they, a lot of them have to do with essentially, Stephen, I, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, I, I like this vision of Jesus. I never was taught it in my evangelical churches, but I, it seems true to me. Now what? Now how do I live with Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving around the Thanksgiving table? How do I live with my brother or my sister or my mom? How do I live with the family members who also call themselves Christians? Um, who, who, if you made a, a, a list of things that I think you should do to follow Jesus, they, wouldn't, they would have a completely different list. Right. They would not check any of the boxes. And in right. fact, they would mock me as being unpatriotic and a traitor and a loser if I told them what I really think you have to do to follow Jesus. How do I live with my family around the dinner table at Thanksgiving? Signed, a fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the very opportunity we're being given to demonstrate whether we are Christian in, in that sense of, it, okay. as followers of Jesus, what has Jesus said to do? <laughs> He's, um, he, uh, he, he empowers authentic otherness so mm -hmm. much so that he recognizes that there are those who will set themselves up as enemies. And once we recognize that, we know exactly what to do with them. Love them, yeah. pray for them, and bless them. In other words, <clears throat> as long as I'm trying to be nice to somebody who I'm supposed to be the same as when we aren't, yes, it seems to go down a bad road because now I'm trying to make sure they're the, that we're the same and I'm, I'm not hearing their different point of view. But what if I'm like, what if I treat that as interfaith? <laughs> yeah, or it is. It is interfaith. Yeah. Interfaith. So now I'm yeah. like, well, yeah. how come I have such angry, angry conversations with, with, with a Calvinist, but it's so easy with my friend Safi Kaskas, who's a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And it's because I recognize that there is authentic otherness in Safi and that, that I am reaching across in love and so is he yeah and um so what about at my at my table where i'm like uh, i am dealing with the other here just just as christ ate with both tax collectors and pharisees right um and so now at that table uh can i treat can i treat the other as a brother and a sister and a parent when in fact they literally are that <laughs> yeah and and to say it is really part of the way of the cross for me is is to engage in friendship with the other. So moving from further away, mm. um, let's say when I began to preach publicly about militarism, 
that, that like opposing it as, as a gospel imperative from the Sermon on the Mountain, the prophets, yeah. Yeah. beating your swords into plowshares, never training for war anymore. What does God do? God brought uh, special forces, um, lieutenant colonel into my life who right. became a dear friend who himself was struggling through the Sermon on the Mount. And we began, we were, we're in contact just like for sure every week. Yeah. And he didn't, he, he ended up retiring from the military after five tours and became a priest. Right. But how does he make his money? It's like training people for war. And, but so I was forced into this relationship forced. I was given an open door to a relationship with the other then. Right. Yeah. Or, and then the Muslim and then, um, uh, I won't name names, but, uh, like one of my dearest friends I'm is a trumpist. I'm like so then it was much easier when I could dehumanize the other but now when they're your friend and you're like I really value this relationship and I don't want to break company with them. Right. And and I think I won't be able to change them. So then no. No. I have to measure how much permission am I being given to speak into this? How much? I mean, I and it and it, so if let's say I'm at the table and there and just there's a spewing forth of propaganda, mm-hmm. um, that's permission for me to say, hang on a second here. That's and I learned this from Lucy Pepiet. Her language is so good. Well, that's one way to see it, right? And here would be another. And then I will bring, but, but I, if I, if my agenda is an outcome of converting them to my point of view, that's, that's yes, right. probably a delusion. But if it's yeah. like, no, I, it, when, when I'm hearing partisan politics or ideological uh, us theming mm-hmm. <clears throat> being attached to the name of Jesus, I, I probably do need to say something and yeah. also give permission to exit the conversation. Just say, you know, this yeah. may be not a conversation that's going to help our relationship. And I, I think that's more important, actually, at this point. And then they can back away. The, where do we go? I, I'm genuinely mystified myself because, you know, this isn't like we're in an era. We're in an era right now. Now, look, you and I are both Canadian. I'm, I'm a Canadian who lives in Britain. So, I mean, I'll, let's just completely agree that there is a ridiculousness about us discuss, discussing America right now because there is a remove that we don't. But America is dominant culture everywhere, and the American culture and the American news is part of our lives. So we have a stake, right? And what's happening right now in the American scene, it's not just a difference of politics. It's not just a difference between public spending or the, you know, big government versus small government or something. We are seriously and literally like as we speak today you know we we had uh mike pence the vice president he literally gave a speech in which he substituted the name of jesus for the american flag he quoted the bible fix your eyes on old glory fix your eyes on old glory and like you know we aren't talking legitimate differences of political opinion here we're talking like actual old school idolatry it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to under understate what's going on here you know it there's a religious fervor which we haven't really seen before every once in a while it'll happen but like i 
as any student of American politics will be able to tell you, like the the overt religious fervor is so much higher right now, especially, and it's not both sides. We don't, we're not doing both sidesism here. The Democrat party has not captured the imagination of the evangelical American. <laughs> it's definitely the Trumpist Republicans that have. So as a follower of Jesus, when I'm sitting around a table with people who are using Christ language to talk about Trump and the, the American flag, now how do I sit with this? Can, I can't just say, well, that's one way of looking at it. Can I? I don't, well, it depends. Um, like, I think that's a good challenge. This was the issue of, if, if we think about, well, what about Hitler? Shouldn't we have, it's like, what about Hitler was Christians mm. becoming complicit? Yeah, of course. They voted him in. Of course they did, yeah. So, so, um, so I don't know that silence is, uh, is allowable when it, if we're talking about if we're talking about uh, the abomination that creates desolation, yeah, which is marrying, marrying yeah. um, the flag to the cross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is overtly and, happening many, many times on, on right. your aunt Facebook pages. I mean, this kind but, of blasphemy happens just is commonplace now. It's not sure. extra. So is there ever a time to break relation? That's that's really difficult. I I would I I wouldn't talk. I, I don't think in terms of breaking relationship. I think the way forward is toward moving towards which Christ did. But but I think that we can speak in terms of bo- healthy boundaries. When I say that that's one way to look at it, I'm not affirming that way of looking at it. I am gently introducing a counterpoint that needs to be heard, and I'm implying mm. um, in. In, with British kind of tones, yeah, that, understatement. that, uh, uh, that I oppose that opinion. And when I, so let me give you an example. Um, if someone, one of my loved ones says, look at, if Trump doesn't get in, Christianity as we know it is over. Yeah. And, and I've heard that, right? Oh, I know. Now, yeah, now I, know. I might enter that and say, that's one way to look at it. Now, so, so that's my gentle and entry point but they have given me permission right by saying okay what they've said right. and i'm going to take that permission that's one way to look at it here's another that's that's the abomination that creates desolation <laughs> this is what the bible was talking about when it yeah. marries uh, a particular any partisan talking point to the name of jesus and that's an that's not christianity that is an alternative religion in competition with with our faith, so that's another way of looking at it. And so I push sure. back hard there, but I'm I'm measuring this out to saying I I feel like can I honor you with pushback as hard as the propaganda you've just laid out? Yeah, and if yeah. that threatens the relationship, that's right. very strange. And I would name that. Yes, like yes, we have we, to start. Naming you would it. break relationship over this, would you? I mean, is yeah. is is that that's another level of idolatry, isn't it? But we could yeah. have boundaries. Yeah. yeah, we will have boundaries. Let's not. We won't talk about that next time at Thanksgiving. But I, I don't know if I, 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 I don't want to wreck every Thanksgiving meal with with a political argument. But on the <laughs> other hand, no, you don't get to talk about Jesus that way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, or if you do, understand that I regard what you're doing as a different religion. And I'm okay with that. If you have a, if, yeah. if you're in another religion, I know how to talk to people, Hindus. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking out loud, Steve. Yeah, I know because we're in our uncharted waters here because, you know, part of me has a real sense of the authentic Kierkegaardian part of me that you just got to mean what you say and say what you mean is, is like, we got to name the thing in the room and we need to say, we Under a pseudonym, not. though, if you're Kierkegaard. Uh, yeah. We do not have the same. We are not the same faith. We might be using the same words, but we do not have the same faith. And so now we have to learn how to live together. Like, and and I maybe you say something like, "I am willing to to be friends with you." Are you willing to be friends with me? And like, you almost give them the opportunity. But you know, there is a. I wonder whether there is some real honesty that is needed at the moment that. It isn't about trying to win the argument. It's just about saying what's in the room, what this, what's happening right now. You just say, this is happening right now. Neither of us are going to win this argument. Can we stay friends? Can we stay in a relationship uh, being 100% convinced that the other one not only is wrong, but is evil or partnering with evil? Like, Because that's the language now. It's like we're getting kind of the the, you know, the conspiracy theory side which is becoming mainstream is that if you, uh, you know, vote blue, you are literally voting for baby eating pedophiles. Yeah. QAnon, right. <clears throat> and, and I know uh, I've, you know, in my spheres, there are, there are high profile people who are believing this stuff and putting it on their Instagram feeds and things. And these are people with, with high profile mainstream appeal. This isn't wacky anymore. Yeah. And also, but on the other side, you know, if I hear somebody talk about, the old glory as Jesus, yeah. I think that's evil. Yeah. So I have to sit in a room with somebody that I think is partnering with evil too. Yeah. And I, I it's like the stakes have been raised that's in a way true. that I don't quite know what to do. Now I will ask you, what do you think it means that when Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, flee to the hills, he says in Mark, when you go into a village, you know, and they just, they reject you, wipe the dust off your feet and keep moving. Where is that? Is there a place for that in today's environment? Yeah, that's the question. Because he is, I, I'm applying something he said to a specific moment and, yeah. in history. And I'm saying, um, how does the shoe fit here? Yeah, and so exactly. On. My own angle on that is that the solution will, you know, maybe I, I have the luxury of not having to vote in the next American election, but I, I want to, I, I want to identify the, the whole problem is that the partisan spectrum left to right, there is no place on that for a Christian. You yeah. can vote one way or another. Yeah. That's okay with me. But what I'm saying is the spectrum itself is the world system yeah. that hates the other and excludes and silences the other. Yeah. Yeah. And that on any given issue, I might look like I'm on the left or right, that I might look like a progressive or a conservative, but that's coincidental because the spectrum ideology that I would, I consider a matrix that yeah. traps people gives you yeah, right. a script. So no matter if you identify, let's say, um, let's say I, I, I believe that we need to treat refugees with compassion and respect and yes, bring order to it, but come on, deliberately, strategically separating toddlers yeah, from their parents and putting them in cages 
yeah. is antichrist, right? Okay, yeah. now the yeah. moment I say that, like, oh, you, you were just you're just one liberal. of these liberals. Yeah. And I'm like, actually, no. Yeah. Um, but on that, on that issue, I think the kingdom says something louder than the Democrats do. Yeah. And then, but then the moment, if I identify myself then as left rather than as Christian because of that position, then what happens is there will be an assumption that I must accept the whole left script. Well, here's, yeah. here's, a, here's something I believe personally as a Christian. I believe that the systematic genocide of all Down syndrome children before they're born is antichrist. It's like yeah. now I sound like a... I'm, oh, you're one of these pro-lifers. Yes, that's why I reject capital punishment. Oh, wait yeah. a minute. Now you're not, see, and yeah. no matter where you are, you're given a script. And, and what happens is if you go off script in that moment, the people that thought you were your allies yeah. go after you back. Yeah. You're canceled, right? Yeah. So, so I'm saying the Jesus way is very hard because you must completely transcend the spectrum, but stay engaged. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you stay engaged, you'll look like you're on the spectrum and you will be misrepresented and persecuted mm. for it. Yes. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? Yeah. If yeah, we yeah. hunger and thirst for justice and become peacemakers as a result, we will be, uh, we will be accused falsely for his sake of being whatever. By the way, theologically, I, I, I end up to my conservative friends, I sound like a liberal, but I'm deeply conservative, which is in the sense that I want to conserve what the church fathers gave us. Right. And so yeah. I wonder if I, I want to conserve the Sermon on the Mount as a real lifestyle way, yes. a way of the cross yes. that transcends spectrum ideology and partisan talking points. But like I said, mm. it's hard because you don't get just to go off to the desert. So when yeah. do we flee to the hills? <laughs> I mean, the fleeing to the hills idea i think is is more about don't don't fight to defend it like it because because the abomination in the temple was the calling card to like all the loyal sons of israel must you know raise up arms to kick out the impurity of the temple and preserve the national race right yeah and i think jesus was like don't do that so i wonder whether that that could be the the kernel there of the teaching would be you know don't kill your enemies over this thing right don't don't in don't die over it and don't this kill over it there's a couple of really important, like relevant points to that in terms of contemporary uh, America as a religion. And that, you know, the, this, this jumping on Romans 13 as, you know, you obey the authorities. And, mm -hmm. and what Paul seems to be doing is in Romans 12 and 13 is like really, really clever and subversive because he says, overcome evil with good. And, and he says, you know, uh, honor the authorities, but in his case, that was Nero. Mm -hmm. So the same authority, he's calling them to overcome Nero, but yeah, evil by not joining the insurgency. Yeah. yeah, and that's why historically there's been a really profound connection between Romans 13 and Revelation 13 that we mustn't. It's almost like you need them both together. Romans 13 says the solution to overcoming evil is not joining the insurgents. Mm -hmm. And Revelation 13 is understand you don't join the empire. It's a beast and it will devour yeah. you, right? Yeah. And I see that tendency right now. So I want to say, 
I want to say Black Lives Matter, and I'm not a Marxist. Yeah. But it's like, no, you you have to be. It's like, no, I don't have to be. I know, I know. I can oppose systemic racism as a Christian um, without buying into a particular political or ideology. And But people don't like that, right? Yeah, I know. So then I have to spend the next month on Twitter explaining over and over that I'm not a Marxist. In fact, Marxists tortured my great uncle, who was right. a doctor. And in fact, they killed my wife's grandfather. And I still think Black Lives Matter. And yeah. if sometimes that makes me look like a Marxist, why would that be? And so why doesn't that make me look like a Christian in your eyes? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So people can't see this, but I just threw down my pen. <laughs> I just say it's infuriating. I mean, it really is infuriating. Like I, I, I have moments where I'm just, I just want to give up because I'm like, uh, my, my life is devoted to teaching Christians about their own Christianity. And my audience pool is aggressively ignorant, like willfully, gleefully ignorant about their own Christianity, you know? Mm. And it's really hard, like on an existential kind of midlife crisis kind of level of like, am I wasting my life, <laughs> you know, preaching, teaching Christianity to, to a majority culture, which demonstrably prefers patriotism and materialism and war. Yeah. Like un, undoubtedly at the very first hurdle, they will throw Jesus over and to go for money, power, and patriotism. You know, yeah. it does not even a debate. So am I wasting my life? Are we wasting our lives, Brad, writing theology about, books? I'm thinking about 12-step recovery right now, like okay. Alcoholics Anonymous. And, what, and it's like, can you accept that this is what is? Yeah. Because that's where my frustration comes in. I know that it is not what it should be. But I'm wanting to say this cannot be what it is, and it's like no, I accept, I accept hmm. that this is exactly how it is. Hmm. And now, what's my place in that? Yeah. If, if I think my place in that is like to make it, I'm going to, I'm going to change the whole world into no. right thinking, or I'm going to lead the whole church into the right path, and um, then what happens is frustration, and frustration is a form of anger that it of a blocked goal thwarted so, yeah yeah thwarted goal right and so mm. when i talked to one of my mentors about that he said i i said what do i do about this and he said well first of all you have to understand you have a stupid goal i'm like what yeah yeah I, it, it's that's not good. a stupid goal to have the church follow jesus in the jesus way and he's like, no that's an incredibly stupid goal i'm like why and he said because you're putting the success of that goal in the hands of the most likely, least likely person. Right. Like anybody who opposes that goal has now ruined your goal. Yeah. You know? right. And so now my goals are in the hands of, 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 of crazy people. So yeah. um, I'm like, well, then what's a good goal? And he said, a good goal is one where no one can stop you from doing what God's called you to do. Um, mm. what has God called me to do? He's called me to faithfully proclaim what I see as the Jesus way. Yeah. Can anyone stop me from doing that? Not shy of martyrdom. And even yeah. in my martyrdom, I would still accomplish proclaim that, Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, it, so my, if my goals are in God's hands and my own hands, then, I, then they can't be thwarted. 
And it would be a simple, I, I learned this in the, when I was opening up to the Holy Spirit um, back in my evangelical days. And my goal was that, like my stupid goal was to make sure that everybody in the church would be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. And my, my mentor is like, are you crazy? Then one person needs to harden their heart and, and they've sabotaged your whole project. Your, your entire life, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then we just shifted the goal to I will, I will, I will proclaim and demonstrate openness to the Holy Spirit and the good fruit that comes from it um, yeah. for as long as they will allow me. And so I did. So that helps. It helps me not to give up because I totally some when sometimes I'm just like, why am I even doing this? Exactly what you said. Yeah. And then the hard part is that I feel like Jeremiah and there's a fire in my bones and I can't keep it in and I've got to say something. But then when I say it, the fire comes out in fleshly ways and I become part of the problem. And it's like, I think I'll just go be quiet for a week. So I do. And then I then I'm back and I don't know. Is this a bad way to live? How do you live with it, Stephen? <laughs> well, there is no plan B. I mean, there is just this life, right? And sometimes, okay, so this is what I'm going to say. Sometimes I think to myself, look, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and I show up at the pearly gates and it's Buddha and Buddha goes, oh, Stephen, <laughs> Christianity was completely wrong. <laughs> It was Buddha all along. I'm going to go, well, at least I did the best with what I had. At least I tried to follow the best source of goodness I ever met. You know, at yeah. least I tried to pattern my life around Jesus. Yeah. So I almost sometimes feel like I care more that it's good than that it's true. Because mm. I don't know if it's true. I can't prove it. Right. And sometimes I'm like, but maybe a life patterned after goodness is maybe that's okay to, yeah. to just keep after goodness. And then at other times, because because I'm a human being and I change, and other times I'm like, no, this is truth. You know, like this is the ground of all reality. And we need to build our lives around the truth, which is the incarnation. Um, so I, I do move on a on a pendulum between those those two poles. But I suppose at my worst times, I think, well, even if, if, even if none of it is true, at least it was good. Yeah. So what if we reverse engineer one of Jesus' statements? When he, when he said, the measure with which you judge, you will be judged. Um, if we reverse engineer that and say, in that moment with the Buddha, there's a kind of judgment you're hoping for. You're hoping that the Buddha will say, I, I see what you're saying, and you're right. With what you knew, you were faithful, and you were operating in good faith. All right, so now that's that's the standard by which I want to be judged. I like that one. Mm. And and now we are called by Christ himself to apply that standard to others yeah. and say to my, uh, like, I know for sure this Trumpist friend I was talking about, I know for sure that he is operating in good faith. Not everybody is. Yeah, right. But I know that with what he knows— yeah, he he is applying his agenda is faithfulness for sure. Okay. Once I stop questioning that, it doesn't yeah. mean we agree, but it takes no. all the heat out of the conversation. Right. Um. There's a guy named For Flores Kaslut. <laughs> he and I co-wrote a little article, but he he was really the architect. He's a young psychologist from Holland, and 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 he says this is this is the key to dialogue both with. Uh, Faith and politics is mm. 
assuming the faithfulness of the other hmm. um, takes the heat out so that you can say, okay, if, if he really wants to be faithful and I really want to be faithful, now at least we have some common ground. And if I say, you see it this way, but I see it this way, I could be taking a faithful person into a new perspective. Right. And if, and, and, and but I, maybe he, he'll do that for me too. <clears throat> and I think that would be judging him with the measure with which you hope to be judged when we right. meet the Buddha, <laughs> yeah. which is a great thought experiment, by the way. Does that work for you? Does yeah. You? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? To, to, to think in terms of conflict management, yeah, relational health. And boundary building then, right? When you run yeah. into an argument and you're like, I honestly do not believe that was a, in, a good faith argument. And I don't yes. think they care about faithfulness. They just want to win. Then I then I can make a hard boundary. Yeah, with with Clarion Journal with Clarion Journal, you know, I had to monitor monitor the comments. Yeah. Um. So we get comments that are quite opposed to some of the articles that we post there, okay. and I post them. But just this morning, it's like this guy is like, "These are all lies, and why aren't you posting my comments?" It's like it's not a good faith comment. You don't. Yeah. It's ad hominem, and so I get to have a boundary. And guess what? Our comment section is not an open mic. So yeah. sorry. That may have to happen closer to home with people, though, and that's where it gets hard and where faithfulness to Jesus is a sword that divides families. But, like, I think we've rushed there quite often. Like, let's not rush rush into, well, yeah, I'm just being faithful, so we got to divide the family yeah, again this right. weekend. It's like, yeah, okay, exactly. maybe, maybe you're just addicted to dividing, not Yes, to it's yeah. that messianic, you know, uh, self-importance where we... We, we, everyone thinks they are the shining exemplar of truth and of truth. Right. And I think you've just come up with incredibly good criteria for truth. And that is goodness. Is it good? If we yeah. prioritize goodness, the good, then we can measure any given claim to truth by that. And I would add beauty to it, by the way, too. Uh, so I grew up as a young lad in the kind of evangelical world and apologetics was a big, big idea, you know, being able to, to argue reasonably, you know, your opponents. And if somebody believes in, in evolution, then here's the six things to do to, you know, to, to humiliate them, which of course never works, never, ever works. And apologetics in that vein doesn't, isn't very good anyway. It's very sub intellectual. But what I noticed when I moved, when I went to university um, and I studied philosophy at university um, and I'm going to name drop here. I studied university at the University of Oxford. I studied awesome. philosophy. So I was studying philosophy at one of the best places in the world to study philosophy. Okay. Yeah. And I was sitting in rooms with the cleverest people in the world. And I was not one of them. I, I definitely knew it. And they were way cleverer than Lee Strobel or, you know, what's his name mcdowell or <laughs> yeah yeah or or, Gosh, or uh, yeah. ravi zachariah like these were actual clever people they weren't just entertainers and uh and and they they could argue anything you know and i realized that and they knew it too it's kind of a game you can reasonably argue almost any position yeah and and that doesn't make it good or right. true it just makes you right. Like it just means you won the argument. And I, yeah. and I was really interesting to realize, oh yeah, you can win an argument and still be right. Or mm -hmm. you could lose an argument and still be right. 
You could win an argument and still be wrong. Yeah. And I, I, even amongst some of these clever people I knew, the really clever ones, it was they were like, well, who cares if you win an argument? That's just yeah. logic. Are you good? Can yeah. you can you live well? And I, I, you know, I almost learned I learned that goodness was more important than intellect from the smartest people in the room. Mm. And even then, I mean, this is a this is a, this is partly what I think we mean by God is love. Is he does not handcuff us to gurneys, and 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 infuse propaganda into our ears until we finally agree. The divine nature revealed as love includes consent. Yes. To to resistance and otherness, and it and it behooves us then to um, to allow that for others and to steel man their arguments. So I don't know that it works at the crass level at all, but. Uh, you know, I went in and I saw a debate between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, right? Mm. And so we've got we we've we've got a, a theist of sorts in in Peterson, and we've got an atheist for sure in in uh, Sam yeah. Harris. And I was there for the second night of debates. The moderator opened the debate and he said, before we continue the debate, I want you to steel man each other, meaning hmm. opposite of straw man. He says, I want you each to share the other's argument mm-hmm. from the night before in a way hmm. that that accurately reflects it. And they get the other guy gets to judge where, whether you've done so. Oh, good. OK, so so Could they do it. Oh, it was unbelievable. So so Harris. um summarized Peterson's argument and the moderator said, so Peterson, how did you feel about that summary? And Peterson goes, I'm convinced. (laughs) And then Peterson summarized Harris's uh, arguments and Harris said, you can write my next book. I mean, they Mm. so honored the other person's point of view that they absolutely still disagreed with it, but they didn't misrepresent it in any way. Yeah. And so I want to I want to be like that a little bit. And and I think that's what we could talk about by goodness, right? One other example was Oxford. I watch I kind of think Richard Dawkins is a bit of an ass and when he mm-hmm. gets into it with arguing with, with like apologetic mm. experts so called. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a pissing match, right? Yeah. But I saw Oddly, and this is what we can do as Christians. Okay. Rowan Williams did a debate with Dawkins at Oxford. Okay. okay. And Doc and and Rowan Williams drew the best out of that out of out of Dawkins such that it immediately stopped being about who's right and who's wrong. And they okay. began collaborating on a quest for truth together in a debate. It was unbelievable. Oh wow. And that was I know from previous debates with Dawkins that it was Rowan to Rowan Williams credit. And he did something incredible there that uh, my American friends hated the debate. Cause like we, we couldn't tell who won. Yeah. They, they preferred the ham versus Bill Nye yeah. one. Cause yeah. it, you know, at least you have a winner and like Rowan Williams was not about winning. He was about no. drawing the best from his opponent to enter a collaboration for truth. It was what a model. So I, that, I think there's a way forward on some of this like that, even with, Oh, how can I draw the best out of nationalists? That's a tough one. <laughs> oh, you I know mean, what? I, okay, I would say I would start with saying something like, um, 
Do you know, I've done this before. I actually did this a bit because you think of how Paul, I've done this even in my podcast, you know, where, where Paul shows up in the Acropolis and it's the, the absolute beating heart of idolatry, you know, the world center for idols. And Paul, we're told, is incensed. He hates the idols. But he goes into the Acropolis and he doesn't begin by saying, men of Athens, you are all idol-worshipping blasphemers. You're going to go to hell. He says, men of Athens, I see that you love to worship. And I see all of your statues. Let me tell you, there's one over there that doesn't have a name. Let me tell you the name of that statue. He basically affirms their worship. He affirms their love of truth. He affirms their idols, their statues. And he says, let me tell you the name of one, right? Who makes it rain on the just and the unjust alike. He is so far from condemning them for their idolatry. Yeah. yeah. It's universal. He says, let me tell you about God who makes it rain on everybody. And he quotes Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Um, so to me, I'm like, okay, if I think nationalism is an idol, which it is, and I'm incensed by it, which I am. Now what I have to do is I have to say, men of America, I see that you love loyalty. I see that you love tradition. I see that you love to protect what you think is valuable. Uh, let me tell you about the person I met who who I'm loyal to, who I think is valuable. Or, yeah, that's right? really good. Why not, eh? Maybe I mean, that that's is, it. It is what it worked with my lieutenant colonel friend because I, where, where we started that conversation is he was very honest and I was very honest. He was honest with, I'm struggling because I, I'm struggling to integrate the Sermon on the Mount with my career. Yeah, right. And then, where my approach was, so he admitted a struggle on his part. And then I said, you know, my, here's my thoughts. We've had a big problem with support our troops because what it really meant was support our, our foreign policy at the expense of our troops without listening to them. And I want to listen to you. I want to actually support our troops by listening to you. What's going on over there? And then he just opens up. Yes. What we're doing there is wicked. Right. We shouldn't be there. And yeah, like yeah, suddenly yeah. he's giving, he's giving you all the arguments. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and we, I think that again, we, we endeavored on a journey together towards truth and the implications of it. Um, and his journey ended up with a honorable discharge and a call right. to ministry. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't despise who he was or what he did, but he's very honest about where right. they were co-opted to, you know, fight for your brothers because they knew damn well they couldn't fight for the ideology driving this thing. And yeah. so uh, maybe you're right. You should do an article about this, about the men at Athens and using that as a model to approach like the real idols, right. Of, yeah. nationalism militarism and patriotism I, I i just absolutely believe that they are they're mm. idolatrous but much worse in the sense that they're baptized in the name of jesus as now religious yeah. faithfulness i know yeah i know yeah it's the idols are now carrying the name of jesus on them which is just mm-hmm. we're talking apocalypse this is apocalyptically bad <laughs> we're talking beast like now <laughs> yeah and it is and it, and although you and i are outsiders um, that does afford us, it, we still have a stake in it because the, the world is blowing up. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but it also affords us, uh, we're not breathing the air they have to breathe every day in their culture. Yeah, It right. makes it hard to 
to think clearly about yeah. these things. So the distance can actually help with clarity. I just don't know that there's whether there will be voices that listen to it. That maybe the goal though is to is that when we preach to the choir, we give courage to people who feel like giving up. I mean, I am a fan of of going with fellow travelers as opposed to throwing all of your pearls towards the hard-headed enemies who just hate you anyway. Yeah. What's the point? We might as well try and build something that is life-giving that everyone can join. <laughs> sure, which is what Christ did. You know, he didn't exactly. lead his movement to attack the Roman Empire. Yeah. You know, yeah. he raised up a movement that actually just eclipsed it in the end because it was so good in a in a way <laughs> we also got hooked it's, into the empire eventually you know that is the triumphalistic temptation we just want to be winners all the time don't we brad like mm. we are addicted to winning and we just always want to tell stories where we become right or we're winners and as i've said before being right isn't one of the fruits of the spirit <laughs> winning isn't one of the fruits of the spirit what <laughs> it's just like but we really want, and, and even in when it comes to nonviolence, you know, like the, the, the nonviolent argument or the argument about violence often becomes like, how does nonviolence solve the problem of violence? Look how good it is. It's solving violence. And part of me thinks, yeah, but that's just utilitarian again. You're just, what if a thing was good, even if it didn't work? Yeah. And then you can only, only as a corollary, because it's good, good fruit will come. Yeah. But, but you, you can't even defining what good fruit is like it. What if the good fruit is martyrdom? Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. That's the issue with yeah. um, some who tried to embrace the Sermon on the Mount only embrace it as long as it is utilitarian. And yeah. then if it's proven in some case not to work, then they yeah. revert back. Yeah. That happened in, in I think it might've been Yemen where there were Muslim um, revolutionaries who their normal lifestyle was carrying weapons, but they, they would, they began to, they were inspired by Martin Luther King and the sermon on the Mount to go to the protest. So w without their guns, it was the only time in the whole day that they didn't have their guns was at the protest because this is what they were inspired mm. by. But when some, when they began getting killed, yeah, they're like, Oh uh, yeah. Sermon on the Mount sounds good. Way of the cross does not. Exactly. And then, so they reverted yeah. and ended yeah. up having yeah. more. Well, yeah, because the way of the cross is more than just following seven verses in Matthew 5. It's it's the way of the cross. Yeah. yeah. Brad Jerzak, I am going to be talking to you next week, I think. Yeah. So we're going to continue this conversation. But for now, I'm going to bring this one to a close. Where can people go? If they want to find out, hear, hear you, you speak more on subjects or where can they go to find some of your books? Yeah, so it, uh, there's bradjersak.com. There's Brad Jersak on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, and then my books are on Amazon. But usually, you, if you're going to go there, look for Bradley Jersak. Okay, okay. And I, I want to plug again, this in-book needs more, like really needs, I think, more exposure because because my, my belief that a higher Christology leads to a wider inclusion 
okay. um, is a need right now. But um, yeah, what's Check the name of your? Out. What's the name of the book? Give us the full title. In I N colon incarnation and inclusion, Abba and Lamb. Fantastic. Maybe we'll just have you have to come back again and just talk about that. Okay, <laughs> let's the, do it. We've got tons of crazy, great Cornelius stories from real life of Jesus okay. following AA or Jesus following Muslims, Jesus following yoga master. You know, it's like, what's going on? And so that, that'll okay. be worth doing someday. I, I can't wait. It, it, it's a date. We're going to do it for sure. Okay. And, uh, and if, if I write a, an RC comment on the Clarion Journal, you, you, you'll delete it? No, <laughs> I want I want some articles from you, man. Oh, okay. Have I think I've already posted a. I've embedded one of a video of you on Kierkegaard somewhere on there. But yeah, I think that is how we began our our friendship. Was I think I did something for one of your. Well, I did a re- I did a review of your the best Kierkegaard book I've ever read was by you. But oh, really? then your summary of it on on the video is just incredible. And I and I like to think that I. When I left WTC, that made the financial space to bring you in. <laughs> Are you still there? No, I've uh, no. I'm I'm happily. You know, I have a very happy relationship with WTC, Westminster Theological Center. Center. I have a very happy relationship with them, um, but I am not teaching for them at the moment. No, I'm, now you have this traveling seminary. I'm a I'm a I'm a freelance theological consultant. Awesome. And I do weddings and bar mitzvahs. I do anything. Parties, weddings, bar mitzvahs. I'll do it all. Awesome. But this isn't well, a plug about me. This is a this I is a way it to should get. be for a moment there. Well, thanks for oh, having well, me. And we somebody will did, see you. Somebody did tell me that I should plug my books more often. So yes, go and find Kierkegaard, A Single Life, the biography of Soren Kierkegaard, available at all good bookshops. No, really. Fine. Do it. <laughs> amazing. So get I a teach, two for one. I teach on Kierkegaard at the grad study level, and your book is a prime textbook. So, oh well, that's great. I I might have to do a whole couple of episodes just on Captain Kirk. Yeah, perhaps that be because he's in the water. He's in the water of everything I'm doing here. Actually, I just don't mention his name very much. It's really true. You're channeling him. Well, anyway, thank you so much for this, and I look forward to seeing you once again in the near future. All right, peace out, man. <laughs> To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.